Hello, welcome back to The Passion Project. My name is Alex Adams, and today we'll be talking to my Uncle Gordon about his passion for education. Uh, he's He is right now uh, a fellow at Oxford. He's spoken at numerous international conferences uh, about education and has also done a lot of work with the specifically with the Norwegian um, education system, um, which is always an interesting kind of uh, discussion. Um, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. I'm well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and just to give a little bit of background on Gordon, um, he he was initially in theology and then switched into education and became a school teacher for for a while and then obviously is, is now an academic. So why don't you just tell us a little bit like about that kind of switch and, and what made you get started in education? Thanks, Alex. Um, I think I got into education uh, because I, the background is that I was the first in the family to go to university mm. or anything like that. So um, the teachers I had in secondary school, high school, um, were, I, I found were really good role models mm. uh, for me because I didn't have family who knew about universities and things like that. Um, so them being role models, I gravitated towards teaching um, mm -hmm. Uh, so when I when I finished um, my degrees and things, so I then taught, um, mm -hmm. and I think, uh, and then what I think what happened with that is I got very interested in learning because I was teaching the second school I taught in for a number of years uh, was in inner city London, a very tough school, mm -hmm. uh, and my main interest is was at that point um, why didn't kids want to learn rather than how did they learn um i could they were very disinterested in learning so that that triggered all sorts of things for me because um i think i'd always been interested in learning culture and, and was there when you were kind of teaching these kids um that weren't interesting was there like I'm just thinking about it more from kind of the school board or kind of what they were telling you as a teacher were the school board saying this is a template to get students interested or were they just kind of like, if they don't care, it's on them or if they, they're not interested? Um, I, I don't think the, the school board had a lot to do with it. And it was what we call a sink school. It was mm -hmm. one that anybody who didn't get in anywhere else would, would go to. So it wasn't selective uh, mm -hmm. in that way. And a lot of the kids were uh, um, lower socioeconomic groups and things like that so um, I think I think their attitude was that they didn't need education fundamentally mm -hmm. and find did you, another way did you find yourself that like as you were like as the years went by and you got more practice that you were able to kind of connect and get kids that otherwise weren't super engaged to become engaged I'm sure that must have been a very great experience if that were that to be the yeah kid. no there were always there were always enough to keep you going um that way because there were some days that you know i used to write a resignation letter every monday night on the train and then tear it up but you know i don't because that yeah. was such a bad day timetable wise but there were always some that heartened you and you saw them sparking into life and your new education was going to mean something to them so you're right that's that was the motivator I think that, that keeps you going when there's a lot of other stuff that didn't and I think what I did then was decide I didn't know enough about learning mm -hmm. so I retrained as a psychologist and became a school psychologist 
And, um, and why don't you talk about kind of that transition for you and, and what kind of, was there kind of an aha moment or did you kind of over time realize you needed to get kind of more be an academic rather than hands-on? Um, no, I think I was, again, I was exposed to a, a very good educational psychologist mm -hmm. and just thought, I'd like to be doing that. That sounds really interesting. And he was far more thoughtful about learning than I was at that stage because I didn't know much about it, really. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I took another degree, um, a part-time degree in psychology and then qualified as an educator. I think you'd call them school psychologists okay. in Canada, except yeah. we looked after about 20 schools. So we had a uh, oh, wow. you know, it was a bigger patch, as it were. Um, and then I, as a result of that, I wanted to go further. So I went, I uh, got a Fulbright scholarship to America mm -hmm. and studied, studied there for five years. And, um, and what did you focus on on your studies specifically? Um, at that stage, I was looking at what we... I don't know what your language is in Canada. It mm -hmm. was at that stage called the integration of handicapped students. We don't okay. use those terms anymore. Yeah. It would be learning yeah. disabled now, I think. And integration was keeping them in mainstream school mm -hmm. because we had a, a tradition of putting them in special schools, um, mm -hmm. which didn't uh, always prepare, well, rarely prepared them well for the outside world. So there was the move in America first to... Uh, uh, to incorporate them in regular schooling. And yeah. I, I think that's probably the case in Canada as well. So I was studying what they did uh, in order and, to come back to England because I felt that they were ahead of the game there. And, and, and how were they ahead of the game in terms of like what were the policies or ways that, that were effective in integrating schools for those who, I guess, had learning disabilities? Um, in in Canada, they, they uh, sorry in um, California, they had a ruling that um, you you to spend fifty percent of your time if you were a a, a special needs student, mm -hmm. um, you had to spend that much time in regular class with regular classes mm -hmm. in regular situations. Mm -hmm. um, like always, it looked good in print, but when you got close up, a lot of the um, the lessons were were not lessons. There were things like um, lunch breaks and uh, assemblies, and, um, and the lessons perhaps the, the, these students should have been in, they weren't. They were taken mm -hmm. out to do special lessons and things. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, it, it was a mixed finding. Mm -hmm. And and like as of today, like have you are you still kind of working on that kind of stuff at all, or is it kind of you've shifted a bit? into I know what your sub disciplines are in, in terms of and uh, evaluating children um, I think I've moved I moved far more into the mainstream and um, mm. yeah the evaluation the assessment of, of students um, partly because of the job I got when I got back which was with a, a national examination board that in mm -hmm. England we have national exams at 16 and 18 and mm -hmm. 11 and how, <laughs> how, and and what do you think about that the, those selections or national exams at 11 16 and 18 um i, I am a, a critic of much much of it um the exams 
we're over dependent in England on exams. Mm -hmm. um, when you're 18, all that counts is how you did in your three examinations in your special subjects. Um, mm -hmm. And um, at, nothing at 11, at 11 years old. At 11, it's to, actually, it doesn't make much difference the national tests at 11 for the kids, yeah. but the schools are judged by them. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a very, very fierce accountability system where the inspectors look at the school results. And if the results aren't good enough, they can come in, they can close schools in wow. England if the results aren't good enough. So teachers are really pumping kids to, uh, to get, get good results at 11 um, and at 16 because the, sec the high schools are judged there and at 18. So there's huge pressures uh, on the exam system, but it's not necessarily good pressure that way. And do you want to explain or ex or explain why you or you believe or even the data suggests it isn't um, effective in terms of the testing and, and the pressure it puts on the kids and, and the teachers? I think it's more the narrowness of it. And you finish up as um, the American literature is strong on it as well, teaching to the test. I was preparing say, kids yeah. just for the questions that are going to come up. Um, there may be an element of that in college as well, but um, it, it's, it's very much um, drilling and things. And we, we use the rhetoric of we want 21st century learners and all this. And then we finish up with pencil and paper exams, um, mm -hmm. you know, that are, are very narrow. And unlike, say, um, Ontario, um, the teacher assessment doesn't count for anything in England, the teacher evaluation. Oh, wow. it's, all, it's all down to the exams, which is why um, we've reaped our reward during the COVID closed down because our system collapsed and we had uh, student protests and we had everything else because um, if there's no exams, how do you get a result? Mm -hmm. um, and, and they tried to... Sorry, go Sorry on. I was just going to say just presumptively because the whole basis was on test that if there's no exams, then there's no way to evaluate well in Canada, obviously, uh, it's a bit different. Yeah, and can I would I use, um, I actually use Ontario as a good, good example of a mixed economy of assessment evaluation, where you've got teachers, you've got some testing, uh, and the like, and you've got other things that go into college entrance as well yeah whereas in england it's often just what were your three grades mm -hmm. um, and just as a student just to kind of give the the listeners a bit of context like as someone who graduated high school in ontario like we did not have any sort of kind of sat type test or or, or formal examination at you know at 16 or 18 mm -hmm. Um, there was a, a literacy test in grade 10, which, you know, mm. was pretty basic. It was just, are you literate or not? It wasn't a kind of, um, no one in college or university was looking at that. And um, in terms of exams and testing, I believe in Ontario, the most you could, at, at least this was as of 2016, I think the most you could give for kind of the weight of grade on an exam was 20% of a student's grade. Um, obviously, you would get tested, but it wasn't like a, a, a formal exam, mm. um, which only counted for 20% or, um, or less of your final yeah. grade, right? So um, it wasn't as though we had 
an SAT, which meant if we got a X, Y, Z, then we would get into college or not. It was much more. Mm -hmm. um, And they also changed the grading mark where basically the teachers had more leverage or not leverage, but ability to say, basically, if you're in an A range, it could be a high A, meaning 93 or a low A, 86, depending on how you did in class too and and stuff like that. Um, and I but, use, I, I must say, I use in my writing and stuff, uh, Ontario as a model of this. Yeah. It's, <clears throat> it's what I call, it's, um, it's, it's a high trust system mm-hmm. where you trust the teachers mm-hmm. to come up with fair results for students. Mm-hmm. When you've, uh, the same is true in Australia and New Zealand and uh, Scandinavian mm-hmm. countries. But when you get to England and Scotland and the like, uh, there's much less because of the accountability system, because schools are judged by their exam results, Mm. you can't trust the teachers because they're going to reward themselves by giving good results to the students so that they look good. That's the political thinking. So we don't trust the teachers, um, which leaves you very vulnerable if your exam system collapses as Mm. it did. And what they tried to do are just finish off but they what they tried to do was to do it statistically on the on the grounds that this is how this school did last year so we'll give the same proportions this year are you are you, are you talking in terms of grades students who didn't yeah. do exams were basically given grades based on how the school had done historically yes yeah um, that didn't uh, go down well, as you can imagine. No, no. Uh, yeah, no. I, I, I just to kind of follow up, you know, I'm not fully engaged in in the UK and, and the education system other than our discussions. But has there been any kind of like sea change in terms of changes in the education system as a result of COVID and um, the you know secondary schools and all that? Sadly, no. Um, the, the rush is to get back to normal. Let's get oh, wow. back. So let's make sure we take exams this time and mm. and everything else. Even though a lot of students have been off a lot of the time, so they're having to uh, say, well, we perhaps won't ask as many questions, or we'll um, we'll give you some indications of the kinds of um, areas that are going to be tested and things, because we know you've not had the full in two years of uh, of education to prepare for this. Um, uh, is there is it pure would you speculate is it kind of a purely political thing like could it kind of be overturned or dramatically changed or is there really been never any willingness to kind of change the system in in the recent years it's a good one that um education in england is very political party mm-hmm. political um and the present government there, there will be very little chance of, of change of this but I'm not sure um, the public want change either mm-hmm. it's one of those things if you've come through the system yourself and you think yeah. you understand it you don't want any change you don't want many changes to it um, so it has to be very incremental if you're going to make a difference I think uh, this is very specific and you might not know it but kind of where in the world does the UK um, kind of system rank uh, amongst like you know the world if you look at um, PISA the um, this the international study for 15 year olds that comes mm-hmm. out of um, 
the organization of economic and community development it's it's an international um well-recognized international test mm-hmm. of um a very literacy numeracy and the like england is middling mm-hmm. you know it, it's not um, there's nothing dramatic about it and it hasn't changed much over the years despite various I got to say again, Ontario is one of the high flyers on that. Mm -hmm. Canada does very well. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I kind of went to a very kind of, I wouldn't say elitist, but very much a very, very good public school. So I feel like I've reaped the rewards of of a good education. I just kind of want to change the subject just a little bit, just kind of a little tidbit question is, What's kind of the most surprising education practices that you've kind of come along, come across in your in your career? I think it. I, I think in terms of exams, the one I I like the most um, is in Norway, where you, as yeah. you said, I, I've done a lot of work. But Norway has an exam. They trust their teachers to mm-hmm. do this, uh, but they do have exams. But it's called an exam lottery. And you don't know which of your subjects you're going to be examined in till a day before the exams. Wow. And the lottery is, Alex, you're doing history this year. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, and so others in the school will be doing other exams. Yeah. But not everybody does all the exams. So the, the thinking is because you don't know what you're going to be examined in, you're going to do, you're going to work hard in all your subjects. I was going to get caught caught out. (laughs) And what's kind of, has that been shown to be the case? I'm kind of curious. I feel like it would be to an extent, but I'm not, or just kids either, either, either it's kind of one end of the spectrum. They either completely try or they just disregard it completely. They they try, but it it doesn't, it's like, again, like Ontario, it doesn't make that much difference. It only accounts for 20% of the, uh, of the grade. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Accepting this one subject that that Mm -hmm. you've done, but all the other subjects will be teacher evaluated. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not crippling in that way. Everybody prays that they're not going to get maths this year in the lottery. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, and just kind of moving forward a little bit, like what kind of goals do you have or projects that you're working on um, going forward? I th- I've kept up my learning theme, I think, mm-hmm. and how we learn. Um, and as you know, I've written about expert learners. Mm-hmm. How do experts, how do top sports people, top musicians, top scientists, how do they become such experts? And I've, I've looked at that, as have many other people. Um, and I've moved, I've moved on a little bit. Um, I think, well, first of all, I think we know that what experts tend to do is they've got very clear goals. They're ambitious in that sense. They do a lot of practice, deliberate practice. So they the Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hours mm-hmm. they go through. I'm, I'm a bit of a crit. I don't believe that actually. I've, I have a kind of question in terms of practice, and, and this is kind of in terms of sport. I think about it a lot, but also honestly, relatively to, to everything, to become kind of an expert, is it like they only like to work hard on the things they're already good at? I'm kind of curious if that's um, been shown that, oh, it's, you know, you can be an expert, but then they, put everything they drop everything just because they're already good at let's say math and then just won't 
kind of care for? Is there kind of a significance between um, that? Yeah, I think um, I think you'd say many experts have been narrowed since they were kids sometimes with sport I'm thinking of. You know, they've not done much else than tennis or um, Lewis Hamilton, the Formula One, mm-hmm. was doing, um, you know, radio control cars when he was six mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he was in a go-kart by the time he was 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's very few Formula One uh, racing car drivers who haven't been go-kart drivers as kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't leave it late in that. So there's that, and the, they don't do much else. Um, mm-hmm. You don't often don't get experts in more than one. Th- they're not experts in more than one thing. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's, a, and that's a problem because it can become so narrow. Uh, yeah. If any changes, or they become very rigid. And this happens in medicine. Happens in science. They've got a particular view, and if somebody comes along with a new one. They're very hostile to it, and the new one might be might be a better theory or a better way of doing it. And has there been anything with like when you've researched for your book and, and just in general for for that kind of experience? Is there any kind of ways in which people cannot be kind of so be an expert, but kind of be open, like willingness to kind of to learn other things or be you know kind of outside or yeah, like non. Um, like not just expert in the field, but also be kind of open and and look at other I think it is staying open to, you know, non-subject thing. You take Albert Einstein, you know, who's a musician and interested in all sorts of things. So you can do that um, um, rather than just becoming completely um, tunnel visioned, Mm -hmm. which is quite dangerous, I think. You You may advance things, but it may may be a cost. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think the idea of not surrendering hobbies or relationships or family or anything else for the sake of your art um, Mm -hmm. might be quite important. And uh, it's kind of two questions, but I'll start with the first one is with regards to the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. I'm just kind of curious, why are you critical of that specifically? And just so the listeners kind of understand to a little bit is that the 10,000 hours theory is once you hit 10,000 hours I believe it's that you're you're an expert or that you are between the pass fail of you can only get so good um, or so bad in a sense yeah I think I mean you would you would argue um, as others that um, if you're going to be a top musician, if you look back at top musicians, they've done 10,000 hours of practice, probably three hours a day for 10 years or something like that. Most people prepare for 10 years to get to the top with regular practice. All I'm arguing is that's very nice for sports and for neatly controlled things, for playing chess and things like where the rules are all there and in place. Um, it doesn't guarantee anything if the situation changes dramatically. Mm-hmm. 10,000 hours um, may not help you when you get something like a COVID pandemic mm-hmm. when it's new and mm-hmm. the old ways don't actually help very much. So um, it's been described as kind problems, um, which are the sport, the rule-based and everything else, and wicked problems which are the ones that we haven't got a formula for. 
Mm. We don't know how to deal with it. So sometimes a lot of practice doesn't make you, doesn't prepare you for that. And and what what kind of things has your research shown does, can you be an expert in kind of wicked fields or in, or can you be, is there kind of different ways of learning that prepares you to be better in, in wicked um, scenarios rather than kind? I think you've to, you've to know your stuff, but you've to be flexible and mm-hmm. you've to be imaginative in a way that perhaps sometimes we aren't when we're, um, you know, we've been practicing year in, year out to do it this way. Um, and something comes up and we say, well, we can't do it that way anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an insight is a, is a good mm-hmm. way where people come up with novel solutions to things. Is there kind of a teaching style or theory that kind of can let someone kind of tap into that a bit more or that's been shown or is it kind of um, it's harder to maybe test so then people don't haven't really adopted those kind of ideas or, or kind of learning? I, I think the idea of allowing students to um, be more to be creative and come up with solutions mm-hmm. to things rather than come up with the correct answer mm-hmm. um, is a way of preparing this um, uh, giving them an unknown and say what would you do with this um, rather than here's the answer try and try and memorize how to do this mm-hmm. um, that, that kind of switch I think would uh, would help in this that where we become problem solvers mm-hmm. um, and I think I think I cut you off before but what are, what other specific kind of projects have you been working on other than I think you mentioned other things other than the book yeah. that you're writing on. Yeah. I don't think you cut me off. I think I got going yeah. again. You know, I have to, yeah. I have to oh, calm yourself, calm yourself. Um, where I've gone with this is uh, having done this work on writing about experts. Um, I've gone back to actually saying, um, looking at it slightly differently and mm-hmm. saying the problem with the, the literature on sports people and things like that is you get all these experts who are so different from us. We just think they're from another planet. They're yeah. so good. Um, so I've gone back to say, well, actually, we're all skilled. Um, it, uh, and we all go through the same stages as experts. We're all mm-hmm. novices at some stage. We become competent, proficient, and we might move on to becoming an expert. But in everyday life, we're actually pretty skilled. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that even learning to read is, mm-hmm. is a remarkable achievement. Mm-hmm. When you look at what happens to the brain and uh, what we have to go through um, just to be a, a competent reader. Um, mm-hmm. we're, the background of this is we're, we're not wired for reading. Yeah. We've only been reading for two or three thousand years as a as a, a, a species, yeah. um, and it's arbitrary. And we've we've got to use other brain wiring to mm-hmm. do it. Um, so it's a remarkable achievement just to be a reader. Um, and I'm looking at things like car driving, computing, um, mm. lots of everyday things that are actually quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to make the argument we're actually more skilled than we think mm-hmm. and we're not uh, we're not uh, the experts are not from a different planet they've just taken yeah. it further yeah. um, 
So we're I'm trying to get us to be um, players rather than spectators mm-hmm. in the business of skills and yeah. thinking about learning and the like. And is is it like the the one kind of question I think of is is it more thinking about kind of using everyday scenarios like you know I think a lot of people in their personal life might say you know well I learned from that situation and kind of going forward is that kind of how you see it in in terms of like we we should kind of reframe how we think about learning yes yeah um the idea that we we learn through experience and broadening our experience Mm -hmm. and thinking about our experience um uh, so that thing of you know just if you think through learning to become a car driver and the mm-hmm. stages you 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 go through there and the importance of good tuition and feedback and the like, mm-hmm. um, this is part of everyday life. But I think it's a model for you know some of the, the you know the, the more noticeable skills or more public skills. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you kind of wanted to touch on or or? I'm um, no, I'm happy with um, with that thought that um, we're actually we're all we learn a lot more than we yeah. think we do, and we tend to just stand back and admire like spectators, mm-hmm. the experts, and we perhaps ought to think a little bit more about us as as players. Obviously, mm-hmm. we don't play in the same league as these, mm-hmm. but we are players, and we have the same skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a fairly positive thought, I think. Yeah. And something to to yeah, exactly, and move forward with, right? It, it's mm-hmm. not just um, I think it just makes it kind of easier for people honestly to attack different things. Maybe attack's too strong a word, but kind of try to to learn and, and realize that, you know, almost a little ego boost that um, it's not out of reach or it's not kind of that's right. We shouldn't that. be too passive in the face of this. Yeah. Yeah. We can do something about it, yeah. Well, and we may decide we may decide um, that we want to stay as just a novice in some things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I'm not not bothered about it. Maybe I I don't want to take my cooking any further yeah. or anything yeah. like yeah. that. I'd say that to you, Alex. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that's true. And I'll, but I need to be a proficient car driver. I don't mm-hmm. want to be a novice car driver all my life and things. So some things I'll move on. Um, some things I'll I'll stop early, if you like. But we need to reflect on that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It was a really fun discussion, Gordon. And um, yeah, thank you. And thank you for, for in giving us a, a great insight into education and honestly how we can all um, learn better and think about learning and, and kind of our own skill set in a, in a better fashion. Well, it's been a pleasure, Alex, and thank you for your questions. (laughs) Uh, uh, Thank you, listeners. Uh, We'll probably have another uh, passion project in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Until then, stay tuned.